Uh, most of the questions um, are in Thai, so I'll, I'll start with the ones in English. Uh, first one, how to overcome laziness. Well, I, I don't know whether I'm completely free of laziness myself, actually. Um, but the, there's some um, basic features here. Changing, uh, changing behavior um, is dependent on really wanting to change behavior. Usually, uh, we don't, we know we procrastinate, we put it off, or yeah, we know we really should do this, but not today. Um, it's usually because there's a conflict in our minds. One part of your mind wants to change, and one part of your mind doesn't want to change. So, unless you can, you know, really make that firm decision, to change, you won't change. And in, in many cases it's as simple as that, just um, in many different kinds of attachments or addictions even, you know, many people who give up, give them up, so they just, just one day, you know, they realize, yeah, it was just time um, to change. But it's as much, you know, a maturing process where where people are willing to weigh up the pros and cons and say like the the cons outweigh the pros, it's not worth it. Um, and that this particular kind of behavior prevents me from realizing the goals which are most important in my life. So, you know, we, we reflect, well, what do we want to achieve in our life? You know, what are our educational goals, career goals, goals in personal relationships, and how does this particular kind of behavior fit in with that? How does this laziness um, enhance our personal relationships? Does it um, make things better? Um, does it help? in our studies, does it help in our career, you know, and uh, if it doesn't, you know, what are the detrimental effects that we've, uh, we've noticed, you know, we get criticism from the people around us, the people whose opinions we, uh, we respect, um, also leads to a lot of self-aversion, you start to have negative feelings about yourself, and that spreads out into all other areas of life. So um, there is a role for what we call yoniso manisikara, it means really thinking this through and really seeing very clearly that um, there's so much uh, suffering and so many problems arise from laziness um, and there are so many things that we really want to achieve in our life which are going to be closed to us unless we deal with this and not sometime in the near future but today, right now. As far as um, setting goals is concerned, you know, we have a, um, a goal of, say, to be free from laziness but it's very important to have like measurable outcomes you know, which means to say, you say, within a certain measured period of time, a week or a month, I will make this change and this change and this change. So something that you can measure and say, have you lived up to this in this period of time? Rather than just a vague kind of intention to change your behavior, which often um, get, just gets lost and then we all, yes, we sort of remember like a month ago, we were really determined to do something about this, and then we never really got round to it. Um, so making your resolution, uh, making a, a, a firm aditan or resolution, and then having uh, measurable outcomes, giving yourself goals for a week and a month and three months, 
writing something down has a very strong psychological effect. It makes it seem much more real if you write something down. Write it longhand. That doesn't just mean printing. You know, printing something in a, in a computer screen and, and, and writing it longhand is a very different feeling psychologically. So writing it out longhand and then telling other people also. Telling the people that you respect that you've, you've made this decision and that you're going to do this and this and this within this time period. So using peer pressure and, and social pressure to, to help you. Now when you, um, when you try to change your behavior to give up laziness or whatever it might be, you're going to have some resistance. So that's when you need kwam otthon, to be patient. Yeah, well, this is obviously going to happen. It's like if you haven't worked out or you haven't been exercising for a long time, you go to the gym for the first time, you're not expecting to have a good time. You know it's going to be tough until you get back into your rhythm again. And it's the same when you try to change your habits. Beginning there's a lot of resistance and stiffness and difficulty, but you know that's just part of the process. And so you just bear with it and be patient with it. And then um, as you find these small successes and small victories, you know, really uh, there's a sense of appreciation or anumotana, just see how enjoyable, how much more enjoyable it is to be vigorous and energetic than it is to be lazy. You know, just notice, just it really feels good, feels better than being lazy. So those are a few tips. <clears throat> Next question. How do you deal with people who disrespect you and take advantage of you when all you've shown them is Dhamma? kindness and gentility um, in brackets perhaps they are jealous but do not want to show it well that, that would be showing it already wouldn't it? Um, yeah the, I mean with a lot of these um, kinds of issues then there's no sort of quick fix or like a sort of first aid um, response. It's a matter of this gradual training as I've uh, been outlining of your conduct, of your emotions, of your thinking, of your attitudes, the way you look at life, the, the, the way you frame things. So remember, you know, there's no such thing as raw experience. You're always framing things in, in terms of certain kinds of beliefs and expectations and, and aspirations. So you have to make those framework, that framework, um, conscious. Now there's, <clears throat> there's no reason at all to expect that everyone that you treat well is going to treat you well. Um, that there's, um, I think, generally speaking, you know, it's a good, it's the best thing to do in many, for many reasons. Um, but we can't expect that um, people are going to respond well to our kindness or goodness in every case. So if you do something good, uh, you act well, or you treat somebody well. You know, there are going to be very different responses. You have some people who generally appreciate um, and feel even inspired by what you've done. And then there are other people who are just going to um, pretend to be, uh, to appreciate and so on. And they, you know, they express their anumotanar and they, but really they, you know, they want something from you, particularly if you're um, more successful, well known, then you know you have a lot of um, people who want to flatter you. You know, prajopajang. Um, you know, and it's, um, and and someone who wants to prajopajang is going to say how much they appreciate what you do and how good you are and, and so on and so forth. 
So that's, you know, there's one group of people that are like that in every society, isn't it? Um, then there are others who are just completely indifferent. They couldn't care less. What's the fuss? You know, just, I, mean, I don't see it's anything particularly special. Um, and com- just not interested at all. And you have other people who are jealous and um, feel threatened, intimidated by your success or your goodness or your kindness. And, and then there are also those people who uh, are very, get angry and upset. You see, when one of the just digress a little bit. Um, there's, there's a long debate about whether people are inherently honest or dishonest. You know, basically, you know, underneath, are we are we honest or dishonest? And and so the various experiments have been devised uh, to 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 check this out. Um, for instance, you give people a number of questions, and then you give them a reward. Um, for each each one that they get right. So let's say you gave all of you these ten questions, and then I give you the answers. And so you tick off the ones that you've got right, and then you go up and you receive your reward. Okay, I've got eight right here. You show you've got eight right, or seven right, whatever. And then you get your reward, say ten dollars for every right answer. <clears throat> and then they... Um, and then they uh, do a second case, for instance, where you have your ten questions, but then you um, you destroy, after you've heard the answers, you destroy your piece of paper. You don't have to show it, but you just tell the person who with all the money how many you got right. So... Um, it would be perfectly all right. Nobody would say anything. No one has any way of checking if you were to say you got 10 out of 10. So um, let's say on this test, on an average, um, with the verifiable answers, the average was, say, 6 out of 10. Now, if if we were all inherently just naturally um, dishonest, then why wouldn't we just say we got 10 out of 10 and pick up our $100? So we would expect in that that view of human nature that um, everybody would do that. What actually happens is the... um, let's say the average for people who have the verifiable, checkable answers, it's 6 out of 10. And when the answers are not checked, they're about 7 or 8 out of 10. So the the conclusion from this is that most people, or almost everybody, cheats, but just a little bit. But on a on a social level, on a na- on a national level, if everybody just cheats a little bit, we're talking. We could be talking about billions of baht, billions of dollars. But every but why is it that people don't go all the way and cheat when they know they can't be found out? Well, because um, the material gain is only one one thing that we want. The other thing that we want is a sense of self-respect. Now we can't, that's a real human need, if you like. We need to be able to respect ourselves. And if we were to go all the way and take every possible thing, we, we'd have to admit sooner or later that we were uh, not a very good person or not, a dishonest, not an honest person. But if we cheat just a little bit, everybody's just, so what, you know, just a little bit, you know, I'm not a real thief, you know, just, just here and there, you know, it's, everybody does it, you know, that kind of idea. So that's, that's the way that human mind works. We don't just want gain, we need to maintain a sense of self-respect. So one of the ways that people who do bad things or things that they know they shouldn't really do is to maintain self-respect is this is, 
this is the way the world is. This is the way society is. It's not like the, the old days or it's not like there. These days, this is just how it is. You know, you, you don't have any choice. You, ha you have to do this. Otherwise, you couldn't survive. That's the kind of rationale that people give for doing things they know are dishonest. So if you have someone who's honest or someone who, who acts well in exactly the same environment, those people are going to be very upset because that person has proved that no, it's not kind of a law of nature or a law of capitalist societies or a law of this um, you know, people today or the world today. It's a personal choice. You've chosen to be dishonest or you've chosen to, um, to take the wrong path. And so people who, who live good lives or, or really make the right choices and wise choices and difficult choices are always going to meet with a lot of anger and really uh, sometimes even hatred. And this is why so many good people have been killed and assassinated and over the years. It's really the most threatening thing to someone who is A, happy to behave in immoral ways and be determined to maintain their self-respect. So if we, if, if we think about this, then I think it gives us a lot more, you know, we're, we're ready to take on whatever comes. We don't expect, well, because I've, I've been so good and kind and, and gentle and thoughtful, therefore, you know, I deserve some kind of reward. It's like my human right. You don't, you don't have any human rights in that way. But still, it's the best way to act. And if we, if we feel that sense of, of disappointment and betrayal and so on, often it's a pointer to the fact that really, you know, we're wanting something as a reward for our goodness. And our, our upset is that we're not getting what we want, um, from our goodness. So there, there's already like a stain on our goodness through that desire. So the um, the Buddha said that there, you know, we make a rang up to you know, like anger, hatred, ill will is never uh, removed, never disappears through more ill will, and um, ill will um, is gradually worn away through love and kindness and metta, but it's not something that happens straight away. The, um, I think an, another thing to appreciate in, in Thai culture that maybe you don't think about very much is that Thai, Thai, Thailand is not a revenge culture. Revenge is not a big theme in Thailand, is it? You know, you, you see a lot of it in, in uh, even in China. So there is a Chinese influence and Chinese, you know, Kenny Dong Chamra, like you know, like in in um, Gamlan Pai Nai movies, you know this kind of thing. Um, but in 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 Thai society, Thai it's it's not really a part. And then, of course, in the West, you have this like Old Testament, an eye for an eye. So it's the reason one of the big failures of, of Western society, and it, it includes Thailand, is what you do with with people who behave badly. And so you've got this farcical situation in, in America where you've got like two million people in prison any one time. And the, uh, there's, because there's not some clear idea, you know, what, what happens when somebody does something wrong? Is it something bad inside them? Is it Satan? Is it evil? Is there some kind of evilness in, inside them? Or is it due to their environment? And, or is it a mixture of the two? And when someone goes to prison, do you just want to punish them and make their life hell so that they um, won't do that again? Or do you try to rehabilitate them? And then the, the whole penal system and the whole way of dealing with people who don't follow social conventions is such a mess um, generally in the world. And so many um, things that are supposed to be deterrents actually are not. I don't know if you've um, heard about this three strikes and you're out. Um, I don't know how many states in America still um, have this on the statutes, but 
the idea was that um, if you commit three felonies, then you automatically go to prison for the rest of your life, irrespective of what the third crime or the third felony is. Um, so you've got cases of people like stealing some CDs from a um, from a from a shop and and going to prison for the rest of their life because it's their third offence and like no parole. So the the mindset, you know, the understanding behind this is if you know you committed two crimes and if you commit one more crime, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life without parole. You'd be so scared of going to prison. There's no way that you would commit that third crime. There's this idea that fear of punishment is a deterrent, stops people from doing bad things. But the, but the results are, are not very convincing at all. And uh, I, I once read an account written by a sociologist who, who went into some of the slums and the gangland areas in LA and in Chicago and Detroit and interviewed well, these people who, who committed two crimes, and if they were to commit one more crime, they were going to go to prison for the rest of their life. And they hadn't changed their ideas at all. They thought they were too smart to get caught. Um, they, didn't, um, they didn't think it was going to happen. So the, the, the various kind of rationalizations and justifications, um, which, which mean that you know, fear of punishment is not a very good, very wise kind of deterrent. It doesn't work very well. Or if you have societies which their whole morality and their whole is based on fear of punishment, you know, like Sharia law, if you, if you commit theft and you get your hand cut off and these kinds of things. Um, or even in, in mo most societies in the world. And what you notice is, uh, you know, what happens when there's a war? Okay, suddenly um, all those things that you told were bad and evil in peacetime, um, now you can do them, get away with them, even get given medals for it. Um, so the external pressure to be moral is often taken away in wartime, particularly in the um, in occupation of countries or where you have, say, an occupying force has complete power over the occupied country say, like America in, in, in Iraq or even Israel in Palestine and so on and so forth. You know, and then um, often the, um, the things that people would be willing to do when they're sanctioned by the state or the authorities um, suddenly you know, expand. And if people don't have any true morality inside them, in inner an inner compass, an inner conscience, an inner morality, and then you find people um, ter doing terrible things in wartime, which would, they would never have done in their ordinary life. So it's not that these people are moral in the Buddhist sense, it's just that is this kind of, um, it's easier um, to be moral than not to be moral, because the situation is not there which would encourage immorality. I've wandered off from the question, haven't I? Um, yes, it's it's a matter of seeing that the people who have no mental spiritual training um, are unreliable, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's very hard uh, to trust someone who has no inner knowledge and awareness because we naturally take our own side, we use logic and argument and things to lie to ourselves. Um, our minds are full of contradictions and inner conflicts, most of which we are unconscious of. Um, and so, you know, I found the more that I've trained my mind and understood the way the human mind works, um, you know, the less, you know, the less I'm willing to trust people who, who've never done this kind of training. Um, because you know the the mind is a you know it's a it's a minefield. It's full of um, as I say defilements. You know defilement. 
So there, there is this idea, you know, if you if you're a good person or you meditate and so on, then you sort of see all the world in a rosy kind of everything's wonderful. And um, but it's quite the opposite because uh, the practice training of the mind, you're looking again and again at all the defilements and the things that impede the the inner peace of the mind or the smooth functioning of the mind. And so you um, you become aware more and more of how those things function in yourself, and from then then you know how it, how those same things work in other people's minds. Okay. Um, every night before bed, I would chant the Pali prayers, Namotasa, Arhangsama. However, these are not the Buddha's teaching, and I can't understand it, but it's in Pali. It is better to abandon praying in Pali the prayers, good worshipping the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, instead chant translated prayers, which are the Buddha's teachings. Um, yeah, it, it's up to you, really. The... Um, those those chants of Namo Tassa and Arahang and so on, although they're in, in Pali, you know, it's very easy to find the translations, what, what they mean. Um, I mean, this I have this uh, you know, argument sometimes with people who complain about funeral chanting. You know, well, you know, any... In any other area of life, you know, you read a book or you hear something um, and you don't know what it means, you Google it or you try and find out what it means. So why why don't you do that with Abhidhamma chanting on funeral? Why don't you just look it up? I mean, there's many books that will tell you what these chants mean. Um, the chanting you know there are two kinds of chanting or two things or more than two things really that that you want from chanting and one is that that chanting creates a particular kind of emotion you know it can bring up uh, faith bring up piti um can it can calm the mind and so if you've really studied the buddhist teachings and you studied, you know, who was the Buddha, what does, what does Buddha mean, and what does it mean when we bow to the Buddha, what is the Dhamma, why do we bow to the Dhamma, what is the Sangha, why do we bow to the Sangha. So you study these things, and then um, after a while, I believe, then you find those, those, um, uh, those ideas of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha very inspiring. And so it's an act of devotion, and it's something which is expressing something in your heart. But if you don't do the study and the practice and, and really reflect on the meaning of these things, they become empty rituals. So, you know, so many of these ceremonies and rituals, they're like vessels, you know, they're like a cup or an empty vessel. It's what you put in them that really matters. Um, so, Namo Tassa and Arahang Sama, you know, that, that only takes about... Um, 30 seconds or maybe one minute, so it's not a big uh, lump of your life being wasted here. Um, but I, I would say rather than replacing them with, with these translated chants, then choose one or two translated chants that, that you really um, enjoy and really have meaning for you and chant them, or, or maybe do a, a selection, maybe Monday do one chant, Tuesday another chant or something like this. And so chant it and so they have some variation so you, it doesn't just become a ritual the sharing of merit and the um, the meta chants are, are very good for that um, are you skeptical of supernatural phenomena have you ever experienced any yourself well, I'm not. I'm not at all sceptical. Um, I'm hundred percent convinced, um, but I'm not convinced of every report of supernormal phenomena. Um, sometimes, um, 
some of the reports and some of the things you hear are, I take with a pinch of salt, yes, maybe, maybe not. But as, as regards the actual um, existence of these, um, these phenomena, um, if you're, like, live the life as I have, and we're living with people who meditate a lot and uh, who are spiritually very gifted or advanced even, then these things are kind of not 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 very, um, you know, unusual or amazing. But um, when I was when I was um, writing the biography of Ajahn Chah um, twenty years ago, um, for leading up to his funeral, um, I really had to make a, a decision about how to present these kinds of phenomena in the book. Because in, in books about great monks, you know, the, you've probably read or maybe have read books that tell you all about these magic powers, or not magic powers, but psychic powers. And, and, and this, for me, these books tend to be very divisive. What happens is some people read them and they get really, really inspired. And other people say, oh, it was so good up to this point. You know, I really like, and then all this stuff, I can't handle this. And they just put the book away. So I, I didn't want to um, write a book that would alienate people. But at the same time, it's not possible to completely ignore these phenomena, particularly in a monk like Ajahn Chah. You know, there are many cases over the years, although... Uh, for me, the important thing was that Ajahn Chah wouldn't make uh, emphasize these things or would uh, tell people not to be interested in them at all. Um, also, there's a lot of, like, upatan, you know, like people have a lot of faith. Um, you know, you're just sitting there and you're feeling really miserable and then the Ajahn comes along and says, oh, you don't look so happy today. <gasps> He read my mind, you know, something like that. <laughs> you know, it, it's, sometimes it's on, it's on that kind of really ridiculous um, level. Um, then, uh, I mean, most monks get reputations for um, being able to, to forecast lottery numbers. And uh, I, I had that reputation uh, one time. And, but... It's, it's, it, it, but it's very easily explainable. If you have 200 people, okay, if you're playing the underground lottery, which everyone in Northeast Thailand plays, it's like the last three numbers, okay? So you want three numbers or two numbers. And um, as a monk, you know, it's almost impossible to give a talk about Buddhists without referring to some numbers, you know, four noble truths, eight, eightfold paths, six, or something. <laughs> So, you know, and there are people, you know, the day or two before the lottery, you know, on the one prowl, whenever they come, and they're just listening like this for these numbers. And then, so, so you know, if you have enough people, um, you have enough, you have a big enough spread of numbers. You know, if you have like, let's say a hundred people um, get a number from your talk, I know you only need one of them to be successful. And no, I don't, you know, he got... He won thousands of baht after listening to a Dhamma talk from Ajahn Jayasara, you see. So that, that's how monks' reputations um, de, um, develop. But then um, on, the, uh, on, the, on Ajahn Chah's um, cremation day, which was also the day the lottery came out, it was the 16th of January, and um, everybody in Ubon knew um, that with Ajahn Chah's great compassion, the lottery number, the last three numbers would be 161 from 16th of January. And sure enough, it was 161. So um, the, the lottery sellers went bust or ran away to Bangkok and, and they, didn't, they didn't pay out. But, um, so these kind of things happen. So I, I was um, writing about Ajahn Chah. So I wanted a, like a cast iron case, just one, to say I'm not going to give you all these um, possible 
kind of things that you could interpret and you say, ah, that's not, you know, that could be this or that could be that, because in so many of these stories you can be very skeptical. So I, I chose just one. Um, and this monk, a friend of mine, he, um, he was on, on arms round. And you see, in those days, um, or even today, when we go out, we have the, we used to have very big bowls in those days. Um, big iron bowls. It's very difficult to look after because they tend to get rusty and then, and they get holes in them and it's a big job. But they're also, if you've got a bowl like that, you can take a few kilos of sticky rice because in villages in those days, very little, um, gup, gup cow, very little curry. Mostly it was, it was uh, sticky rice. So you get this big heavy bowl of sticky rice. And then you get back to the monastery and you tip it all out and it goes off to the kitchen. But then you keep however much rice that you're going to eat. So you make a ball and you put the ball in your... And, and so this is a big thing, you know, how big a ball of rice do you make? You know, because you don't want to have too little. Um, <laughs> so you take some time just to get that right amount. I mean, some monks, they like stick like that, stick your rice. Um, and anyway, this, this particular monk, doing a lot of work, um, like we do a lot of like really hard physical labor, like building work and construction work and something. And so you can be working from, say, um, well, you say you get up at three o'clock in the morning or before three o'clock and it's morning chanting and meditation. And then you go on arms round, which can be five, six kilometers walk on a completely empty stomach. And then you come back, you've got another hour's wait, and then you have one meal a day, okay? So, and then you can be working, like construction work, like climbing up and down and mixing cement from, say, 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. So, uh, pretty you know, tough. So, this monk was uh, telling me, um, he was walking back from arms round, and he thought, I'm really going to have to make a bigger ball of rice today. You know, that, my, my present size of ball of rice, it's just not, it's just not going to sustain me through all this hard work we're doing. Um, so he, he was walking back through the gate of the monastery and Ajahn Chah was coming out. In those days, Ajahn Chah wasn't, um, strong enough to go into the village on Bindabad. So he would just go to the front of the monastery, I think. And Ajahn Chah, um, looked him in the eye and said, oh, so you're going to eat more rice today, are you? Uh, so you're going to make a bigger ball of rice today, are you? So that, that was the, you know, there's so many stories about monks being able to read people's minds. And some monks can read people's minds, I, I, it's true. Um, but, you know, in so many cases, if I was to tell you stories, you could say, well, you know, that's not really conclusive, it could be this and it could be that. But I think this is a really good case because, you know, it's not a matter of that monk had said something in public to someone before or he said it to something to Ajahn Chah. It's just something that came up on arms round. He's saying, a lot of work today, you know, and I, I'm just not eating enough rice. I need to make a bigger ball of sticky rice. And then Ajahn Chah was to see him just then and, 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 and say exactly those words. So I, I think that's a um, pretty conclusive um, case, and there are sort of more Sanuk stories like this, but they're, you know, they're open to skeptical. Also, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah used to say, actually, you know, you don't, um, often you don't even need to read people's minds. He said, like, I look at the monks, and just tell you about how, I don't know if anybody's been to Wat Bapong in Ubon, but uh, it's not the same now as it used to be. You can see pictures in books. The, 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 the dining hall was very long, very long, narrow building um, with benches all the way along. So you, you, the monks would be sitting one long row this side and one long row that side. And then Ajahn Chah sitting here. So you're sitting here and you, you're aware that Ajahn Chah can see everybody all the time. You know, so you're always under his eye. And so he he said, you know, I I don't I don't need to read people's minds to to know you know where they are. All I have to see is how they sit down, how they get up, how they carry a spittoon, how how they carry their bowl. 
you know, your whole, your whole manner, the way you move, the way you, you pick things up, you put things down. Everything is, 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 um, giving messages and giving information to, to monks with this, um, level of awareness and, and sharpness and clarity of mind. So it's not necessarily a case of, um, reading minds, but it can be. So there. Yeah, I could probably go on about that kind of thing for a long time, maybe. Um, If you have very ambitious career goals, how do you, one, not become overly ambitious that you lose sight of family and physical and mental well-being? Well, I mean, the very question itself shows that the um, the person asking the question is aware of the need for that kind of uh, of balance. So, <clears throat> so the, the the answers in the question to a certain extent. But what I, I would like to say um, something about a daily meditation practice, because there is a temptation to think this is just one more activity to add on to all these other activities, you know, okay, I, I study and I, um, and I go to the gym and I do this and I do that and I've got, I'm just trying to fit in a bit of meditation here and there, you know, it's, it's like one more thing. But, um, what I would suggest is you, you, you see that meditation is just not one more thing, but meditation is when you just step back from all the things that you do and all the people that you have to be and all the expectations that you have to fulfill. Um, and you're able just to step back from that and um, through the mindfulness and awareness you become sensitive to your work, rest, family, um, balance. It, it's a way of taking stock um, of where you are and what you're doing and, and whether it's too much or too little because often we're just too busy to really be aware of what's... Sometimes your body's telling you, your mind's telling you, but it's, it's as if the, the signals that your, your body and mind are giving you, um, unless you get really ill, um, are just too faint. There's, there's so many other things going on that drown them out. Um, so you through putting aside some time for meditation is getting in touch with really what's going on in your life. And often you'd be sitting there and <clears throat> and um not but you don't have to be particularly peaceful or samadhi or anything, but suddenly there's just something comes up in your mind. Yeah, that's that's really that's really too much, you know. I've I've really made a wrong decision there, or that's really something I need to deal with. Or maybe another time, you're you're sitting there and just just sort of pops up in your mind, you know, that well, this is not really such a big deal, you know. Why am I worrying about this so much? Why am I so upset? It's really nothing. Um, or something else it's, it, which you hadn't really thought about. You think, oh, now this is really serious. I can't let this go on anymore. Because in, in a daily life, you know, what, what tends to happen is that, you know, we obsess and make huge issues out of very small things very easily. And very important things, things that might have major consequences and th affect our long-term prospects in our life and our relationships and our career, we just overlook, you know, maybe we just don't really see it, it's particularly important right now. And then sometimes if it's a, a negative kind of thing, we suddenly wake up and it's too late to do anything about it. So that of um, tuning in to 
the inner wisdom that you have. You know, often when you, you're on the wrong track, there is a sense inside, you, you feel off balance, but we're alienated from our hearts um, because we're over, we lost that balance, we're overly concerned with things outside ourselves. So I would say to, to, to find that kind of balance between physical, family, spiritual, career goals, then um, giving yourself time just to um, retreat uh, from the world, just to be quiet and be with yourself, um, meditate, meaning just developing that inner awareness and, and calm, uh, to be able to um, orient yourself wisely um, in the world you live in. How do you not become lost in money and fame that may come with career? Well, um, again, it's it's just being observant and being smart and 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 just looking. You know what are you know uh, what's so great about being famous? Um, you know, so many there's most famous one of the most famous sayings. Uh, Andy Warhol, we're living in a world where everyone's famous for five minutes. Um, so, you know, so many people who are so famous just a few years ago now, nobody's ever heard of them. Or, you know, say in the political world, big thing to become a government minister. Now, how many, uh, say, ten years ago today, who were the government ministers? Five, or even today. I, mean, I don't even know who's in government minister today, but... Um, you know, things that people make such a big issue of in the end. Yeah, so what? You know, fame, so what? Yeah. And, um, and it's, you know, it, it's, I think, a bit, bit pathetic when people are, are willing to, um, to miss out on so many important and, and beautiful things in life just for this, this, uh, uh, ephemeral kind of dream of, of fame. So, the more you're at peace with yourself and content with yourself, um, and that comes through meditation, then less important it is to be known by other people. You know, your, your self-worth is not surely not dependent on how many people have heard of you or how many people know who you are. Why, why would that affect anything meaningful in your life. So, you know, really looking at people who who really want to be famous. Now this this is one of the, the chilling chilling things in, in England a few years ago, they interviewed all these uh, huge number of primary school children and said, What do you want to be when you grew up? You know, when, when I was a boy, it was things like, oh, I want to be a train driver, or I want to be a footballer, or I want to be this, or, you know, um, I want to be a lawyer or a doctor. And, and, and now the number one um, desire of children in English is, I want to be famous. I want to be a celebrity. You know? So, and the, you know, the classic um, definition of a celebrity, a celebrity is someone who's famous for being famous. You, know, you don't have to be famous for being gang, or you're just famous for being famous, you know. Um, so it's a very hollow and, I think, unfulfilling kind of goal in life. Um, there's a lot to be said for having money, isn't there? But the, um, I don't want to be too romantic about it. In most cases, having money is better than not having any money, unless you're a monk. Um, but the... The important um, reflection, I think, is that in, in say, in the language, sort of special language that the monks use, um, we refer to money as bhajai, and and I think that's a really important reflection. Like bhajai means it's a support, you know. And, and the problem about money is not is not uh, accumulation of money at per se, but it's when money becomes a goal or a measure of who you are, rather than as a means towards an end. You know, if you, you have some noble or worthwhile 
uh, goals in your life, you know, often having money is better than not having it for sure. You can do a lot more to, um, with money than you can without it. But if money becomes your goal, I want to have a lot of money, I want to be rich, I want to have more than anybody else, then that's, that's a very unhealthy attitude towards money. Um, so, you know, we're educating our relationship to money. You know, what, what is the wisest, um, healthiest attitude to money? You know, if we see like flaunting wealth, is um, is cool, then uh, I think that's pretty sad. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, with, with with moral, emotional, spiritual maturity, um, then you know we we're looking less and less to external. Um, Responses, you know, to I must be somebody special because uh, everybody knows my name, or because I'm, you know, I I have this and I have that which nobody else has. You know, the, it's a matter of looking into the the fallacy in these kinds of ideas, and the you know all the um, studies that I've seen of looking at the correlation between. Uh, mental illnesses and um, materialism, material narcissistic attitudes. The more materialistic people are, um, the more they're subject to clinical depression, for instance, the more um, narcissistic they are, the more uh, domineering and cruel they can be, um, so on and so forth. So uh, I don't think we have to say money is bad, fame is bad, um, but um, constantly looking at what is our relationship to the whole idea of fame, what is our relationship to money, and what is the wisest and the most constructive attitude to these things that, that we, can, we can have. I think this is the best way to look at it. Okay, um, I've shot over the allotted time, so um, I have a short meditation to end the morning session. So I'm not going to give any instruction now for the next 20 minutes, just um, sit silently and practice in the way that I've been teaching you.